I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Nadine Terman, and James McDonald. Steve Grosso will join us shortly. Tonight on Fast, trouble in the charts. Chartmaster Carter Worth breaks down the key levels to watch with the S&P 500 now down every day this week. Plus, we've got an earnings alert on Cisco. Shares are sharply lower in the after hours of the company's call now underway. We'll tell you what's dragging down this stock. And later, a trade alert in the metals market. One of our traders hitting the buy button on this key commodity. We'll bring you the name and break down the trade. But we start off with today's crypto carnage. It was a gut check moment in the cryptocurrency market. Names like Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, even Dogecoin getting slammed today, sinking double digits and shedding millions of dollars off the market caps. And the selling was fast and furious. Bitcoin quickly plunging below $30,000 before bouncing well off that low. It is now down 40% from its April all-time high. So is today's crypto collapse just some froth coming out of this trade? Much more pain ahead. James McDonald, kick us off. We saw a breakdown of Bitcoin below the $50,000 level without a rebound. Uh, Studying the security or if we can call it a security, this enthusiastic asset class, we've seen a dip and rip pattern. Every time Bitcoin's come down, they've come, down, they've come back and bought it. Uh, we didn't see that at the May 16th breakdown below 50,000. That was a sign of things to come. And then again, on the 16th, uh, excuse me, the 12th and the 16th, we saw a lack of buying support come in. And that was kind of a clue uh, that the sentiment had shifted. And you know, everybody knows when an asset swells to the level it did, it's got to stop at some point. I think those were the clues. Uh, looking for the next level, we think the 27,000 level will be the next level. Carter Braxton Worth of Cornerstone Macro was on earlier this week saying, you know, a drawdown of 55 percent is, is garden variety when it comes to Bitcoin, Nadine. And so I'm, I'm curious, I mean, a 55 percent down is garden variety. We're, <laughs> we're pretty much still within that garden variety spectrum. Doesn't feel too good, though. No, in fact, we probably only have one or two clients who uh, don't care about that kind of drawdown and are true believers for the long haul in crypto versus almost all of our other clients who prefer to, us to trade it. And so just as you know, we we're talking about just now, uh, we saw some breakdowns, not just in Bitcoin and below 50,000, but also in the related stocks, whether it's Grayscale or MSTR. You saw that breakdown. It, was, uh, it actually broke our short-term trading range line. And that's when we knew we actually had to trim. So um, it wasn't a surprise to us also that this is happening. Yeah. Karen, you've been in crypto for some time now, since what, 2017 mm-hmm. or so? You've yeah. seen your fair share right. of dips. And so what do you make of this one this time around, particularly mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, this time around, there are so many more institutions on board. And you would have thought that perhaps some of this volatility would have been dampened just by the presence of larger institutions, larger fund managers, et cetera, being present in the market. Right. I, I mean, I don't know if that's what filled in for support. You know, I looked, Bitcoin was, I don't know, 38,000 or so. And then I don't know how many minutes later, it didn't seem like a lot. It, bro- it was at 30,000. And I don't know what exactly took it up from 30,000 to one point it broke 40,000 to the upside. I don't know if that was institutions that were on the sideline. I think that some institutions who don't have the exposure that they want may still want to be there. Some may not. They may look at the volatility and say, you know what, this is just going to be too much for us. But, you know, to me, having lived through so many of these downturns, particularly the one in 2000, I believe, was at 17, where, I don't know, it went up maybe 
four or five hundred percent only to, you know, the next year fall maybe by two thirds or so. I don't remember. They're gigantic numbers, but I don't remember how wide the swings were. But I know it was really fun on the way up and really not so fun on the way down. But you have to expect it to, to be an owner of Bitcoin, right? When I originally got in, I thought literally my money could go to zero. I didn't really understand it. But I came to be a believer in the, the theory of, you know, digital currency mm-hmm. and why markets would be in, why, why investors would be interested in that. And I don't think that's dramatically changed. I don't think this China news was really particular news. Um, it was interesting to me to see, did Coinbase at one point, I know I couldn't get on their website this morning. I don't know. They clearly, they had, I guess, they had trouble processing that. trades. And I saw on Twitter a lot of comments saying, oh, you should use the one and a quarter billion dollars that you're raising through that convert that you just announced this week to improve your, your infrastructure to process <laughs> trades when things are getting hot and heavy on, on Bitcoin. And, and that's a that's a fair point. Um, this is an emerging asset class is an emerging market in terms of the ability to trade it. Steve Gross, I want to go to you. You're on the phone because we're having some connection issues. Um, but taking a look at, at Bitcoin, as Karen had mentioned, there are a lot of external factors this week. There was a PBOC announcement overnight basically saying that, that Bitcoin cannot be accepted as a digital currency, as a, a form of payment. We had all sorts of Elon Musk headlines, whether it be implying that, that Tesla may or may not be selling it to today's tweet saying that Tesla has diamond hands when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, but in terms of the prism of the market, does the froth coming out of Bitcoin, does that indicate to you anything about the market direction? Yes. You know, obviously, the first blush is when people sell a risk asset like Bitcoin or alt currencies, it's a negative. It's a headwind for the market. Many institutions have pointed to that as uh, why the the market is a little bit weak or, or every time we start to rally, the market fails. Obviously, we're still at or around all-time highs in the in the uh, in the S and P. But when you look at Bitcoin uh, specifically, I see the level that James is talking about in the mid twenties. That definitely could be a further weakness for the for the uh, for for Bitcoin. But I think thirty thousand is probably a substantive a floor in it. I, I, I think the, the way I, I'm looking at this is that there's two issues going on. It's, it's really ironic that China comes out against it, but all, 75% of all the mining comes out of China. That's number one. Number two, I think the main issue for Bitcoin is Elon Musk right now, both up and down. And the last he said was he didn't, say, as you alluded to, he didn't intend to sell any of its Bitcoin. And the, the last part of this was, once they get a little more environmentally friendly, he thinks that he will shift back to his prior sentiment on mm-hmm. Bitcoin. So that, to me, sets up for, I think you better buy, as James said, the dip and rip uh, uh, analogy. I think you're getting set up now for a rip, whether it's in the next week or the next month. I think you've seen the lows put in in Bitcoin, and I think it trades right back up to 50 again. But I, I guess getting back to the original question, I'll, I'll direct this this time to Nadine. Does that mean if you if you think that Bitcoin is going to dip and then rip again, go higher? So so garden variety pull, you know, drawdown, then bounce higher. Does that say anything to you about the equity markets? Yes and no. It depends where it's coming from. Like today, some of the weakness is that people actually just couldn't trade the bottom. So we had heard from some clients who have their own personal accounts. Uh, not naming places, uh, but they actually couldn't get in their accounts, couldn't see what they had, couldn't trade. 
Um, so there were some logistical issues here today. Uh, but I think, it, as we know, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. So instead of people buying the dips in the broad equity markets, there has been some cash sitting on the sidelines. But what that can tell you, though, is when they decide to actually come back in, you can see an extended rally and in, in volume supporting that type of rally. Um, so I, I believe that they're a little bit different. Um, but in one way, um, I would say that this is obviously an asset that is newer and has people a little bit more nervous when you see volatility spike like we did today. Yeah. Um, Karen, in terms of being a holder of Bitcoin, is this a dip that you buy or do you wait longer? I, I w- wait longer. I mean, I'm really not trading around this. Right. I know that I know as volatile as it is, I'm just not trading around it. Every so often, I take some money off the table just because I want to, you know, play with the house's money. And if you're really good at it, yes, you could. I'm not really good at it. I, you know, 30,000, that was somewhat nauseating this morning. But so I'm not good at it. And it's a distraction. It's not a big investment for me. So I could waste all day trying to trade (laughs) Bitcoin and do a terrible job of it, which I can nearly guarantee or I could glance at it and focus on other things. Fair enough. Our next guest says the market was waiting for a big pullback and the heavy buying drove Bitcoin off its lows. Let's bring in Melton Demures, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares. Melton, always good to see you. You as well, Melissa. Excited to chop it up. And shout out to Karen. I want to trade Bitcoin with her. <laughs> Maybe someday you can. We'll try and, we'll try and hook you guys up. Um, in terms of what we saw today, was this capitulation in your view? Look, absolutely. Um, at CoinShares, as you know, we like to look at data to tell stories. We have $5 billion in assets under management. We're in the markets trading every day, primarily a risk-neutral strategy. If we look at options skew, right, that had been trending bearish for the last two weeks. So we saw a big run-up. Um, let's just remind your viewers, since the start of the year, Bitcoin has trebled in price, starting near at 20 topping at 65. We're now hovering around 40. Ether was a laggard, but in the last few weeks has seen its own trebling going from around 1,000 to all the way uh, up to 4,500 just a few days ago. So it's been really frothy. There was a lot of leverage in the market. Some of that got taken out in April. Still was a lot of leverage. So this correction we've seen, I think, is is healthy. A pullback is normal in crypto. The last piece I'll add is, um, Karen touched on this, you know, if we look at the macro story, Institutional cash is at near record highs, sitting at $3 trillion. It was at $3.2 record high in May of last year. I think right now we're seeing skittishness around risk in general. So allocators are pulling back. We saw this reflected in fund flows last week. Mm-hmm. We saw $50 million in net outflows from Bitcoin fund products last week. So I think this is skittishness. It's tied to macro. It's tied to overall markets, tax day selling. People just get anxious. And that's what we have here. Right, right, right. It, it's funny because I think it was a couple of years ago, there was a case being made that around tax season, you get the refunds and it goes into Bitcoin. And that's actually a, a <laughs> bullish right force in the market. But regardless yeah. of that, Maltem, um, you're talking about allocators um, and this notion of institutions being in Bitcoin like they haven't ever been before. Are you surprised that the volatility in Bitcoin has not been dampened at all, that we are still seeing massive drawdowns and massive swings, even though the presence of institutions is much greater? than at any other point of time in Bitcoin's history? Sure. Um, That's a great question, Melissa. I think it's really important to specify how people are accessing markets. 
Over the last few weeks, a lot of the volatility we've seen is not coming from institutions. It's coming from market makers, traders, and retail. Retail does move this market. A lot of the buying activity we've seen over the last week is actually coming from newer entrants to the market and the venues where it's happening. As I alluded to, we did see 50 million in outflows from Bitcoin ETPs in the last week alone. That may be some institutional capital, but we've seen far more on retail platforms Binance is the primary platform we're watching. Record levels of both inflows and outflows on that platform. Coinbase over the last few quarters has seen consistent outflows on the Bitcoin side. And as alluded to, a lot of this market infrastructure, it's open 24-7, 365, serving tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of customers who around these volatility spikes are looking to trade. These outages that we saw just further exacerbate order book liquidity. Weekend events also exacerbate that liquidity because trading firms aren't working weekends in most cases. So a lot of this, in my view, is still heavily retail driven. Mm -hmm. The institutions, by and large, that we work with, that we talk to, they're not making three-day, five-day decisions. They're spending time. They're doing the research. And when they're allocating, they're looking to allocate long-term. Right. Karen, you have a question? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, um, Yes. How much of the Bitcoin story was the idea of Bitcoin being used for purchases? I know that when Tesla said they would take it, that sort of started, a, you know, sort of a fire there. And it, given this kind of volatility, I think that really can't be part of the story. But how much do you think that was baked in? Look, nobody really is using Bitcoin primarily for purchasing today. Um, One Tesla total, I think, was bought using Bitcoin. So that story was really a non-story. If you notice, right, Elon Musk kept the Bitcoin on his balance sheet. This was really about getting some of the haters off his back around some of the recent ESG concerns that have been articulated. But as we look at behavior with Bitcoin, today, a lot of the activity we see is Bitcoin's really being used as a, a savings technology. We do see people in certain climates, particularly in economies where their native currencies under a lot of inflationary pressure, potentially using Bitcoin as a means of transacting. But stable coins like Tether, USDC, and others now have over $100 billion in circulation. So when it comes to using something as a payment medium, I think we see a lot more utilization of stable coins as opposed to assets like Bitcoin and Ether that, again, people want to hold in their portfolios as investments. Right. Melton, thanks for your time. Always good of to course. see you. So good to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Melton Demures of CoinShares. James McDonald, when, when Melton talks about the massive activity on a Coinbase, I think, wow, this could really be upside to the quarter, this unforeseen volatility. Well, for those of us approaching 50, we've seen a few market <laughs> cycles. and We remember uh, a few big market pullbacks. And I think we're all waiting for this implosion in the crypto space. Uh, this is the first time I've seen in my career big institutions act on FOMO, fear of missing out. I think we saw Fidelity come in and then we saw Merrill say for some clients they would do it. And then you had this effect of multi-billionaires jumping on board, responsible, intelligent, professional investors who had built great fortunes jumping on the bandwagon. And I think that with the catalyst of the Fed and stimulus checks and money in people's hands and this really complacency in the market drove these asset prices up so high. But this was bound to happen in the space. We also see, you know, concepts that are literally non-producing 
uh, non-usable uh, 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 securities and or asset classes swelling up in value. So many people made money. Uh, this had to happen, and I think it's going to continue a little bit longer. But we do have a new established investor base through these different platforms, uh, whether it be crypto or whether it be simply um, uh, the other apps that allow people to invest. I do think this is going to continue. I think we're going to see Bitcoin come down to the mid-20s level. All right. We've got a market flash in the healthcare world. Meg Terrell's got the headlines. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, it's five o'clock, two weeks before the ASCO Cancer Research Conference starts, which means hundreds of data sets on cancer drugs were all just released at the same time. We've been sorting through them. The major story right now moving stocks is Allogene. That stock up in the after hours uh, on data on its lymphoma treatment. Those look positive, uh, really looking at sort of the durability of that treatment. You can see the stock up approaching 12 percent there in the after hours. That is the main story driving stocks right now. We'll keep sifting through all of the data that that's come out uh, and let you know about anything else that's moving. Mel, back to you. Meg, thanks. Meg Terrell, go combing through all those ASCO abstracts. Steve Grasso, what's your trade in biotech slash healthcare? Yeah, so I, I think it, it's funny that uh, as soon as Meg comes on, we're, we're all, or at least I was, I, I was waiting to hear something COVID-related. So I think the fact that we're starting to hear about other market-moving uh, ideas or headlines in the biotech space is probably healthy for the overall uh, sector itself. So I would say that that as the economy opens back up, people are starting to get treated for different ailments, and they're getting back into hospitals, and they're starting to use different drugs. I would say that the IBB is the way to play it uh, for me. And obviously, if you look at the chart, it's choppy at best, and year-to-date it's basically flat to red. So I think this is one that you could see a tailwind as we start to see people think about something other than COVID. All right. Coming up, we're all over some after-hours action in Cisco. That stock is dropping after reporting earnings just moments ago. That call is now underway. We'll bring you all the details next, plus a red day on Wall Street. But have no fear. The Chartmaster is back with a technical take on where stocks and Bitcoin could be headed next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Cisco shares sinking in the after hours. Josh Lipton's got the breakdown. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, remember heading into this report, the stock had rallied about 15% over the past three months. But now, as you mentioned, given some of that back here, as for the results, beats on the bottom and top. Q4 guidance, though, 81 to 83 cents. Street was at 85. Revenue, they forecast, growing between 6 and 8%. Expectations, 5.5%. Also, big focus on the call margin guidance. Lots of questions about that. They're calling for between 64 and 65%. The street was at 66. I caught up with MKM's Fahad Najam. He's take on the print. Solid Q3, he says. Top line beaten race. But that guidance, weak relative to expectations on EPS and gross margins. CEO Chuck Robbins on the call. Called this a very good quarter. He said Cisco returned to growth in the quarter that was driven, he said, by improving macro environment and strong products. The future of work, he says, is going to rely on Cisco tech. So demand and momentum, uh, he says, is strong. But there are challenges, though, too. There are supply chain issues, Robin, saying that Cisco is dealing with, including increasing costs for components. Freight costs, he says, are higher as well. Cisco executives saying they are managing through these supply chain challenges. They are partnering with suppliers. But these issues, they say, are are likely to stay with us through the end of the calendar year. A dynamic situation, they called it, and a headwind. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. By the way, you can catch Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins on Mad Money coming up at the top of the hour. Meantime, let's trade Cisco. And Cisco, um, Nadine, was part of this old guard technology 
sector that had been doing quite well, even as some of the big cap tech stocks were not. So where do you stand now on Cisco? kind of like we expected. We thought it was 2.2 times downside versus upside into the quarter. So I kind of hope you see a lot of weakness here. I would trade the weakness. It's a great team. They tend to be pretty conservative with their guidance. I have my colleagues listening in on the call, so I'll you know catch up with him. But it's about the supply chain. It sounds like it's going to last for a few quarters, some of these issues. But I also want to hear about order trends. Any kind of color on that will be really important. But it's at an implied volatility premium going into the quarter at 56%. So I like those kind of odds where people are paying up for protection. So everyone was really nervous going into the quarter. And that tends to mean that if you can back a good management team with solid execution, you'll do just fine. Once upon a time, James, um, Cisco was the bellwether when it came to the tech sector. It was the bellwether when it came to um, tech spending in the corporate world. Is it in that the commentary about the supply chain issues and costs increasing, can that, do you think, be extrapolated to other companies? Possibly. Um, but sticking with Cisco first, mm -hmm. I think this is a name like Nadine said, uh, is going to attract some attention. I believe there's going to be a flight to quality, to your point. This is an old guard company, and it's got nearly a 3% dividend. These supply issues are going to go through the rest of the year. People have a good understanding of what the impact to this industry is. For Cisco, uh, I like holding it. For the rest of the sector, however, I think that those names ran up significantly higher in the networking space. And what I do like about Cisco uh, is it's going to continue to be conservative in their numbers. They knew they were going to miss, um, but they also have a good reason. This is not a, a, a company-specific issue. It's more of a, a macro issue. Yeah, and to that point, Karen, are you worried about some of your other tech holdings? No, I mean, I look at something like this, and I think that the supply chain issue, this, this is something that I would consider transitory. Mm -hmm. People can drink now if they're playing the transitory game. But I think that it's something that I look past when I look at a company. But some of the ones that I have are more software than hardware, which might be, you know, somewhat of the difference in the supply chain. Um, I, I look through that. I don't think it's a, you know, same for GM, right? They have issues, supply chain issues. Uh, I look through that. It wouldn't make me sell my GM. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A rough day on Wall Street has investors running for safety. But the Chartmaster has you covered. Carter Worth joins next to make sense of it all. Plus, we've got a fast pitch coming your way. And this one has the potential to go sky high. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks under pressure for the third straight day. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq all closing lower despite a late-day rally into the close. We heard from the Fed a few hours ago. They released minutes from their last meeting, some members signaling a willingness to start talking about scaling back the Fed's massive bond-buying program, quote-unquote, at some point, um, in effect, that would mean tapering. Karen, how do you interpret this all and, and the impact on the markets? I think it was sort of overblown. I mean, it would seem ridiculous to me that if the economy continued to heat up and GDP grew so quickly that no one would even consider talking about it. So the idea that some members would consider talking about it, about some date in the future to do it, okay, that shouldn't be news. It would be ridiculous to me if they didn't. So I think the market kind of freaked out for a minute and then, I don't know, hopefully realized that this... It, 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 it was nonsensical to okay. me, but right. who knows? 
Steve Grasso, your take. Uh, well, I, I'm looking at the chart of the 10-year yield, and I know that we keep circling back to this, but we entered, in my mind, the reason why we haven't seen inflation other than in lumber and commodity prices, and I, I know that's, that's more than enough sign of inflation, but the 10-year yield still can't take out that one spot seven four level, uh, and, and to me, that's ludicrous. So that means we entered into this environment in a deflationary world, and that's the bigger fright or scare, uh, if you will. So I think the, the Fed knows this. The market is getting to know this. And unfortunately, there is no sign of inflation on the way that the Fed measures it. So I think that's the more frightening angle to this whole dynamic for the marketplace. I mean, if, if the 10-year yield cannot take out 174, which is with the high back in March, even on the back of some very hot inflation numbers last week, James, I would think that that's actually very good news for the markets, knowing that we're sort of range-bound and we're not going to take out that high. It doesn't look like it, at least. Right. And the 10-year the Treasury became a story, right? We were looking for reasons to understand, not reasons, looking for things to understand, you know, what was going to tip sentiment in this market. And uh, 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 the concept that the Fed came out, I believe it was in October of last year, and said, you know, we're not doing anything for the next 36 months. I mean, I, there's nothing on record like that before, not in the Great Depression, not in 73, 87, 88. There's never been a statement like that before, and I think the market took it and ran with it. So now we're hypersensitive to anything the Fed says that would indicate a normalization of monetary policy in the 10-year Treasury. I believe it's one indicator, but we've got to look at these stock prices. We're just seven trading sessions away from an all-time high on the S&P 500. Tech came down, but tech ran up so much stronger. I think that we're looking for ways to understand how monetary policy is going to go back forward. The Fed wants us all to be safe. We're going back to normal. Some of the mask restrictions are coming off. We're going to see what happens in this economy. And I believe there's going to be more commentary from the Fed about going back to normal for monetary policy, whether it be from an inflation standpoint, watching unemployment, uh, or simply looking at the tone of how we're going back to normal. So the bottom line sounds like buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> Let's get to the chart master meantime for some key levels to watch going forward. Cornerstone Macros, Carter Worth joins us now. Carter, what are you looking at? Well, so we have a little bit of a dip, a decline, a correction, a pullback, a drawdown. Forget what you call it. The nomenclature doesn't matter. Let's try to put it in the context of the charts. So I have four. Here's the first chart. And this starts just before the pandemic hit. We know we have that epic plunge and then this recovery over the past 12, 15 months. And it's right on the trend line in effect since the pandemic low and you can see it there uh, in that chart. Now look at the second chart, exact same time frame. but what we're looking at here is all of the dips, corrections, pullbacks since the March low. Now there have been six in total, this is the seventh, and if you look at those six, some are eight, some are nine percent, some are five, but if you look at all of those that are five percent or more, their average decline is 7.8%, third of four charts. This is chart one and two together. So we have a sell-off right now down 4.2%, not as much as the average of 7.8, but it's right to the trend line. So do we hold or do we break? We're thinking we break. Now, where might we go? Final S&P chart. This is the same chart again, exact same time frame, but it has the smoothing mechanism the 150-day moving average. And so 
were we to go down to the 150 day, which essentially is rising quickly, right? It's around 38.25 now, but moving quickly, that's the nature of a moving average. We would come down to around 38.50. And interestingly, that would be exactly an 8% decline, which would put it along the average of all the other declines since the pandemic low. 38.50, but holding the uptrend, correct, Carter? Well, we've broken the trend line. I mean, we're on the cusp of breaking it, right? We're, okay. we, clo- we touched it there today at the low. I think we do break it, but we get to the 150-day. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about the story of the day, and that would be, of course, Bitcoin. Carter, you, you told us just days ago that the drawdown is garden variety. Are we still in the garden variety spectrum at this point? Well, that's the nature of beta, right, of course, is that drawdowns are different depending on the security or instrument in question. And this is, uh, this is wild stuff. What we do know is here, too, in this instrument, uh, Bitcoin, and you can look at the chart that's only a, a one-year chart, but before we examine it, we know that this has had a dozen or so sell-offs of greater than 30% since 2011. And the average sell-off is 56%. Some have been 90 all the others are 30 to 40. And guess what? We dropped exactly 55% here. So the question is this, though. What f- from here? It's always that, right? We've got to make our money each day, make our bets. And, and, and the issue now, as I see it, and you can see that on the chart on the screen, is that once you have a drop such as today, where you 30%, yes, you leave people trapped above. That's just the nature of what supply is, right? It's one thing to be down 4% or 2 or 12, once you're down 30 from your cost base, it happens quickly, you become an interested seller. Get me out. Uh, Let me have my money back. And so while we bounce nicely off of today's low of 30,000 and change up to 39, uh, any progress up towards 40 will induce, in principle, those who committed capital for the last three months, from March, mid-March to mid-May, will induce them to take their money out. So it's a very difficult moment to go higher. Overhead supply looms. All right. Carter, thank you. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Um, Nadine, I'm not sure what else you did today, but what really stood out was you buying (laughs) copper. Right. One of the things we think of is, and I've given it for some of our final trades, is just reflationary trades, whether it's energy, materials around the world. And so for us, we saw, uh, amongst other things, um, copper trading off earlier in the morning. Uh, and so we got to pick up some good, some good buys this morning when everyone seemed to be puking for, uh, and also it seemed like, I think there was a hedge fund breaking down. So um, some of the color that we had gotten uh, led us to believe that with that and implied volatility premium, so people paying for protection super high across the board and in our favorite reflationary places, energy, materials, financials, and so including copper, um, it was a time to actually enter the market and not get scared and, and get out, as Carter's saying that some people do. Yeah. Karen, your take on the market action today? Well, it was interesting to me. It sort of was led by Bitcoin, it seemed, right, when the market opened. And then I don't know if it was once Bitcoin sort of stabilized, there were sort of a couple things that, you know, the MAGA complex sort of started to come back. And I'm not really sure why, but that was somewhat of a ballast for the rest of the market. So, I mean, names like Google and Facebook ended up the day up. There were some other ones that were, um, you know, only down slightly. And then the semiconductor space turned around. 
So I don't know. I feel like the market just got kind of whipsawed, but net, net, not that much happened except Bitcoin. Yep. Coming up, Target hits the bullseye. The retailers surging on the back of strong earnings will dart into that trade. But first, we've got a fast pitch on deck. One trader's hoping to knock it out of the park with a trade that could go sky high. That's a clue. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money Airlines, rebounding strongly since the depths of the pandemic. And our next guest has her eye on one name in the space she says is ready to fly even higher. And it's not just a play in the reopening. Jennifer Fan is the CIO of the Fan Family Office. She's taking the mound for a fast pitch. So, Jennifer, what's the name? Thanks, Melissa. We are going to talk about Spirit Airlines today. I think it has potential in the short term to rally 50% as we get a handle on how second half travel shakes out this year. We all know that airlines are a big part of the recovery story. Right now, the street is basically modeling a gradual return to 2019 normal. I've been bullish spirit for a while, and there are several thematic factors that I don't feel are currently priced into the stock. First of all, domestic budget leisure travel is going to take an increasingly large portion of the overall travel pie. The tendency of millennials and younger generations to spend on experiences instead of physical things was put on hold by the pandemic, but will return even more than before with stimulus money, flexible work, and a newfound sense of mortality all playing a part. These are long-term trends that will play out over the next months to years. So what's the near-term catalyst? All of the airlines have been guiding that bookings already back to 2019 levels. We think that bookings in these times, when there's still so much uncertainty, have been skewing last minute. It'll become clear in the next few months as we go into peak leisure travel season if forward bookings surprise to the upside. So there's an element of uh, YOLO to this this pitch, Jennifer. (laughs) Yeah, there is. I, I hear it from... From all of my friends, I hear it from people that I talk to that there's a huge pent-up travel demand everywhere. Okay. Nadine's got a question for you. Nadine. Jennifer, you know, Southwest came out yesterday and said that June fares should be at the 2019 level. Can we read through to Spirit with those comments? Or what are you looking at to say, yes, um, the data's coming my way? Yes, certainly. And we had um, we had Delta coming out with like aggressive um, bookings information, too. Um, I think to some extent, this is not necessarily picking individual names. It's it's the whole sector kind of moves at once. So a lot of the airlines like um, like Allegiant are going to have a lot of the same factors as tailwinds. Are you concerned, Jennifer, that uh, corporate corporate travel is going to pick up and you're not going to see the tailwind from that in a, in a spirit? So one of our, yeah, so actually the bear case for spirit among most of the bank analysts is that business travel will be so depressed forever that it will cut into the margins of leisure travel as the legacy carriers try to pivot towards their market. So it's actually interesting that you could kind of see it both ways. Um, I believe that business travel will change in the future from kind of the traditional kind of business class fare to the fact that a lot of my portfolio companies are smaller businesses and they've used the advent of remote work 
to both allow employees to work flexibly, but also to hire people, the best people that they can hire regardless of location, which is actually a huge advantage to a startup. So we're now seeing people who are working remote full time, but are returning to the office for a week at a time every couple months. So yes, I think that business travel and leisure travel will pick up and that leisure travel will be a larger piece of the pie. All right. No more questions. It is now time to vote. So we ask our panel, are you buying Jennifer's pitch on Spirit? Steve Grasso, weigh in. So Spirit was a name of mine uh, for a long time. I am no longer in the name. I agree with the pitch, but I'm going to have to say sell. And the caveat is what you touched on, that corporate travel, even though business travel is only 12% across the board for these airlines, it accounts for 75% of the revenues. People are itching to get back to the business travel, and I'm, I'm starting to see traders' conferences light up again. So I would play it with a Delta, but I like everything that she had to say about Spirit, but I'm no longer in the name, so I have to vote now. All right, Karen, what do you say? Well, I'm, 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 she lost <laughs> me at Aerosystems, which isn't her fault. It was a good pitch. I'm just sort of, you know lukewarm on the space generally given the bounce back it's had i know the stock's still down far from where it was in 18 good pitch though but um i'm i'm you're out. not converted yeah. all right james what do you say you got spirit yes you do but not me oh <laughs> i like oh, jennifer no. and i like this space and i like her analysis jennifer have you been on a spirit plane it reminds me of the bus we used to take in Boys Club. You have to pay for your bags extra. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no power cords. We want a good time when we go back into the travel space. I was at LAX last night, never seen the airport more busier in the last year and a half. This is a name. This is a company that doesn't provide a quality of experience for the back to travel lift. And so I've got to pass on spirit. But I like Jennifer. All right. So three passes so far. Nadine, what do you say? Jennifer, I'm on board. I made you a plane here. I would trade it. Um, you've got short interest here of 9%. Implied volatility premium is about 27%, still in a bullish formation. I think a lot of negative news is already in the stock, even though it has rebounded some. But it's going to be about execution. But that's something I can actually bank on uh, and watching EBIT margins go up. So I'll, I'm going to trade it with you. All right. The traders have spoken. Jennifer, congratulations. One out of four ain't bad. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. More importantly, though, are you out there buying Jennifer's fast pitch on Spirit Airlines? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll reveal the results coming up later on the show. Our thanks to Jennifer Fan. But up next, we're talking Target. The retailer surging more than 6% today on the back of strong earnings. We're hitting that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Talk about a bullseye. Target surging more than 6% to a new all-time high after reporting earnings this morning. The retailer sales rising 23% in the first quarter thanks to exclusive brands and curbside pickup. Karen, you bought Target yesterday, didn't you? Yes, I did. I got a little <coughs> lucky in that market sell-off. So it was down even though Walmart was up and ended the day up. And Walmart was the roadmap. Walmart's mix improved. And you know, if Walmart's mixed improved, then Target's was really going to improve. It blew away. I mean, it was just extraordinary. So gross margins, I know Guy loves to talk about that, 30.9 versus 26. 
The operating margin, though, was just beyond stellar at 9.8%. Extraordinary. It's not crazy expensive here, but I did sell half of what I bought yesterday, kept the half, uh, sort of make that a long-term position. It, it, it's, I don't know, outstanding execution. I can't say enough about what a fantastic job they've done. It's still, it's not crazy expensive, but hard to buy anything up twelve and a half dollars Karen, I guess I need you on speed dial. You need to call me and let me know when you do those trades. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but we're seeing, I think you're right, we're seeing here, you know, it's an implied volatility around premium around zero. Uh, it's still bullish, but about five to one downside with our trading ranges. So we agree with you. This, like, today's the day that you don't buy all this amazing news, but it is something you really want to trade on a pullback. All right, coming a good up. Good call. Uh, yeah, definitely a good call. Coming up, one semi stock set to report earnings tomorrow. Options traders are betting on a power surge for this name. We'll break down the action, and there's still time to vote for Jennifer's fast pitch on Spirit. Do you think it's a buy? Head over to our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. Cast your vote. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a big chip name on deck tomorrow. Applied Materials reports earnings after the bell. The stock avoided today's sell-off, and options traders are betting on more gains ahead. Mike Coe joins us with the action. Hey, Mike, what'd you see? Hi there. So in the options markets, we're seeing an implied move of about 4.8%, $6 higher or lower, slightly higher than the 4.2% that it's averaged over the last eight quarters, and calls outpace puts by about 1.6 to 1, slightly under the 20-day average of 20 to 1. The options that saw the most opening activity were the 127 calls that expire on Friday. We saw just under 1,800 of those trading for about $1.16. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to rally above that 127 strike price by at least the dollar they paid. That would put the stock well above 128 by week's end. And considering how much the stock moved today and actually four of the last seven trading days, I actually think these options are relatively cheap going into a catalyst like this one. Grasso, you like AMAT? Uh, Not particularly, but technically the setup lines up exactly where Mike uh, had said the 50-day moving average is slightly above 128. It stopped on a dime recently at the 100-day, which is 116. The stock is up middle 40%-ish or so, 44%, and had a recent pullback from the recent highs of 18%. So this one's not considered a very expensive tech name. So I think if you're in this one, you stay in this one, and you look for that area, 128, 130, in the next couple of days. All right. Thanks for that, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, your final chance to vote for Jennifer Fan's fast pitch on Spirit Airlines. Is it a buy? There are only a few minutes left to vote. So vote the results and the final trades right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is time to find out if you at home were buying Jennifer Fan's fast pitch on Spirit Airlines. And it looks like this one didn't get off the ground. About 63% of voters were not buying it, so agreeing with three-quarters of our panels. But our thanks to Jennifer Fan for doing her best to convince America. <laughs> it is time now for the final trade. Let us go around the horn. Steve Grasso. Capri Holdings. Capri Holdings. This was a fast pitch for me back in September. Stock was trading around $18. I know I'm getting greedy here. It's last sale, 55 They report earnings next week. I think they're going to knock the cover off the ball with earnings. I'm looking for the stock to trade. As I said in my fast pitch, closer to $100, so almost a double from current prices. I remember that one, that's for sure. Nadine Terman, what do you say? 
coming back to British Petroleum BP. So when energy was overbought in the last week, we trimmed a bit, but now it's looking attractive again. This name in particular, about seven to one upside to downside. Applied volatility premiums, 15%. We want to be long reflation and a great management team. So BP. James McDonald. Forget Target, buy low, sell high. Walmart is my pick. Four <laughs> investment banks, including JP Morgan, agree with me. Four have upgraded their price targets, 157 and 181 range. Karen Feinerman. Yes, I like TJ Maxx that reported today. People are a little disappointed it wasn't better, but I think it's going to be more better next quarter. Store closings will uh, come down and costs will come down. So TJX. All right. On sale. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money is up next.